Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the last, the final, the ultimate episode on Count Ugolino. How long are we going to give the count on this podcast? I guess a lot of time. Dante gives him a lot of time, so we might as well give him the same respect if Dante gives him the hugest amount of real estate in all of Inferno we might as well do the same this is a final episode on Count Ugolino and I should just say where we are in case somehow you have found yourself to this episode of the podcast without having walked all the way here cheater you somehow just got here without having walked here. We're on the ice sheet of Cocytus. We're at the very bottom of hell. We are in Canto 33 of Inferno. We're going to be at lines 1 through 90, which is actually longer than we've been at before with Ugolino. I'm adding the final 12 lines, which I have lopped off and should never have lopped off, but did so that we could focus on Ugolino. But the final 12 lines of this passage actually make a great deal of sense out of it and help us see it in various lights. So I'm going to go from line one through 90. I'm going to read you my English translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find this on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Print it off, make notes, drop comments, talk to me there. That would be fabulous. Still, nonetheless, we've spent a lot of time with Ugolino. One final episode on an assessment of this overwhelming figure. Raising his mouth from his savage meal and wiping it on the hair of the head he'd been gnawing from behind, this sinner, Ugolino, began, You wish me to renew the despairing sorrow that already presses down on my heart just by thinking about it, even before I tell it. Well, if my words will be the siege which become the fruits of infamy for the traitor that I munch, You'll see me cry and speak at the same time. I don't know who you are, nor in what fashion you've made your way down here, but sure enough, it seems to me you're a Florentine when I hear your voice. You've got to know that I was Count Ugolino and that this one is Archbishop Ruggieri. Now I'll tell you why I'm his neighbor. That the final result of his evil reckonings, despite my trust in him, was that I was seized and put to death. There's no need to tell all that. But there's no way you could be able to learn how cruel my death was. Listen up and figure out if he wronged me. A little peephole in the hawk's mew that's now called by the name of hunger on account of me in which others are yet to be shut up, had already shown me through its slit several waxing and waning moons when I had a nightmare that tore open the veil of the future for me. This one appeared to be the master and the lord tracking the wolf and its cubs over the mountain that obscures Luca from the Pisans, driving lean, eager, and trained dogs. He had Gualandi, along with Sismondi and Lanfranchi, arrayed out in front of him. After a short run, the father and his sons were worn out. It seemed to me that the flesh was torn from their haunches with razor-sharp fangs. When I woke up a little before daylight, I heard the cries of my own sons who were locked up with me asking for some bread in their dreams. You are truly cruel if you're not already suffering at the things my heart was predicting for me. If this doesn't make you cry, what 
would. Then they woke up, and the time approached when our meal was usually brought up to us. We were awfully afraid because of our dreams. That's when I heard the nails being driven into the door down at the base of that horrible tower. That's when I looked at the face of my children without saying a word. I didn't cry. I'd turned to stone inside. But they cried. And my little Anselm said, You look so weird, father. What's up? Even then I didn't cry, nor offer a reply all that day and the following night until the sun shone on the world again. The moment a few rays of light shone into that sorrowful cell, I could see my own face stamped in their four faces. I chewed on my hands out of grief, and they, thinking I did what I did because I wanted something to eat, stood up all at once and said, Father, we'd have a lot less pain if you just eat us. You clothed us in this miserable skin, and you can peel it off. That's why, to spare them more grief, I calmed myself down. That day and the next, we didn't speak a word. Oh, hard earth, why did you not open to swallow us? After we'd gotten to the fourth day, Gatto threw himself at my feet, saying, My father, why won't you help me? At that he died, and as sure as you see me right now, I watched the other three fall one by one between the fifth and sixth days. At that point, utterly blind, I started groping over the corpses and calling for them for two days, even though they were dead. That's when fasting had more power than grief. When he'd said this, with his eyes rolling in his head, he sank his teeth into the wretched skull and held it tight, like a dog with a bone. Oh, Pisa, the utter disgrace for all those people who live in parts of that beautiful land where sea is heard. Since your neighbors are slow to lay hands on you, let the islands of Capraia and Gorgona move around and block up the mouth of the Arno and drown every last one of you. Even if you thought that Count Ugolino took on the title of traitor for you because of those castles, you really shouldn't have put his children up on such a cross. In their young years, Uguicione and Brigata remained innocent, you new fangled Thebes, as well as the other two who were called out in this canto. There's the passage in its complete entirety, complete with the poet's response. I find this, as I've already told you, incredibly interesting that we don't get a response from the pilgrim and we don't get a response from Virgil, our usual mechanisms for understanding what we should think about a sinner's speech, whether it be the pilgrim fainting or whether it be Virgil cautioning us here 
it seems to me that the poet Dante steps out and gives a condemnation of Pisa. He asks that these islands, Capraia and Gorgono, two small islands controlled by Pisa in the Mediterranean, he asks that they actually move, a geographical transposition, that they move, block up the Arno so that the Arno no longer flows into the Mediterranean. It backs up and drowns Pisa and everyone in it. And then Dante goes on to name the remaining two figures in the story who he says are the sons of Ugolino, but who are actually one grandson and one son, this Uguicione and Brigata. I'd like to say several things about what happens inside this giant 90-line passage as a sum-up of Ugolino and his place. Some of these things are minor, and some of them are rather major. So let's just get started with them. Ugolino is very quick to point out that Ruggieri is the traitor. I mean, that is what he says. If my words will be the siege which become the fruits of infamy for the traitor that I munch. But Ugolino himself must be a traitor. He is at such pains for us not to see that. He's at such pains for us to see Ruggieri as the traitor. And we talked about the irony of this in the last episode of this podcast. The fact that, in fact, Ugolino is the instrument of Ruggieri's infernal torture. So there is a way he is differentiated from Ruggieri. And yet here he is locked in this icy circle of the treacherous. He is at some pains to tell us that he isn't a traitor or perhaps to make us focus on the pathos of his death and perhaps even make us believe that somehow his fate was so cruel that he ended up eating his children much as he is now eating Ruggieri. You heard me two episodes ago tell you that I think that last line, so opaque and so difficult to interpret, is that way on purpose. Ugolino would like us to think that the pathos finally devolves down into a place that replicates what he's doing right now. But I find the opacity of the last line the point. I do, in fact, think he died of hunger. I do not think he consumed his children, but I do think he wants to leave the seed of doubt in your head in case you don't think this story is pathetic enough. There's another place that he sows a little seed of doubt, and it's one that's easily overmissed early in the speech. He says, I know you must be a Florentine, this guy walking past me, the Pilgrim Dante with silent Virgil. I know you must be a Florentine because I hear your speech and, you know, I recognize the dialect. And then he says, you've got to know, <laughs> I, guess, I guess he thinks he's just so famous, you just have to know who he is. You've got to know that I was Count Ugolino and this one is Archbishop Ruggieri. It's that shift of tenses. I was Count Ugolino. This one is Archbishop Ruggieri. It's that way in the medieval Florentine. Let me just back up and say, I want to be careful here. The notion of time tenses, verb tenses, is much looser in a medieval context than in a modern context. And we have shifted back and forth over the course of Inferno from present to past to past to present. A lot of the times, I have to tell you, in my translation, I've blipped over those problems. There's a way in which medieval poets use the present to be more emphatic 
static than the past. They use the past also to establish fact. If I state it in the past tense, I'm kind of setting it in a factual context rather than an associational or perhaps a still somewhat ambivalent context, particularly in the past historic tense. I'm really setting it as fact. There's all kinds of resonances in tenses that we don't have in modern English or many modern languages. But this one, it seems to me, is really important that Ugolino wants to claim that whatever he was is done and over. I was Count Ugolino. Ruggieri is still the hideous traitor. This is Archbishop Ruggieri. His infamy, his torment, his treachery is in the present tense. That is a bit of a, what do I want to say, obfuscation on Ugolino's part. They are both wases. <laughs> They're both dead and in the ice sheet of Cocytus. And they are both ises. They are both present right now in the moment of the narrative. So that he wants to separate himself, put distance between himself and Ruggieri shows us that he is a master manipulator from the get-go. I told you that there are interesting moments when Ugolino breaks his narrative. I just kind of want to go over those right now in the speech itself. There's, of course, the break that we've already talked about when he basically says, well, you know, all the stuff that I did when I trusted Ruggieri, I don't have to tell you all that stuff because that's stuff you already know. That's clearly a step out, a break from the narrative in which he obfuscates or hides his crimes, his dastardly life up on earth and says, ah, you know all that stuff. You know the details of what a wretch I was. So let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how I died because that's really the important thing. We've talked about that narrative step out and that break and it's really coy. I mean, listen, this is what a good defense lawyer does. A good defense lawyer <laughs> helps uh, the, the jury, helps the jury, mm, spurs the jury on to not pay attention to the actual crime, but to the circumstances around the crime, or to the defendant's life, or to their hardships. A good defense attorney tries to take the focus off the problem itself. Ugolino is certainly doing that. He's trying to obfuscate, hide, he occlude. He's trying to blip over the many political treacheries that are in the historical record about his own life. But there are a couple of other interesting moments when he breaks the narrative flow of his story. Right on down from that, he says about the mew, the hawk's mew, right? He says, you know, he's up there and we talk about that little slit where the hawks are kept, where they're molting, and he's watching the moon through this little slit in the tower. And he stops the narrative in order to say that's now called by the name of hunger on account of me and in which Others are yet to be shut up. So he predicts the future. Other people are going to be in this tower, which actually turns out to be historically true. Apparently, so many people got nailed up into this tower. It stank so bad that they actually had to quit using it as an imprisonment for people because there were so many corpses. But it's that little bit that is now called by the name of hunger on account of me. What an unbelievable narcissist. He wants to stop his narrative flow, stop the flow of the story, which is the pathos of his own death and mm, 
a little bit of his children's death, but really it's how his children's death affected him. He wants to stop that to say, oh, and by the way, that tower, it's now got my name on it. I mean, you know, you know who I am. I'm famous. He is such a narcissist from the get-go. He wants this whole thing to focus on himself. I would argue that even the death of his children, it's about his reaction. I turned to stone. I felt this. He can't get out of his own head ever. And we can see that in the way that he breaks his narrative to tell us, hey, you know what, that tower, it's famous because of me. Of course, he breaks the story to say to the pilgrim, I can't believe you're not crying. We've talked about this before. He seems to really want to elicit a response. And so the story goes on. He wakes up from his dream. His kids are crying because they're dreaming of bread and they're crying because they're hungry. And then he breaks the narrative and says, you are truly cruel if you're not already suffering. This is so interesting to me, because for me, what this says is that although Ugolino sees himself as a master manipulator, he also worries about the effect of the tale. If the pilgrim is just standing there stony-faced, and if Virgil is just standing there silent, He's got a little doubt going on, Ugolino does. A little bit of hesitation in the way megalomaniacs always do. They have this way in which they believe they're so powerful and master manipulators. But then you can always see the chink in the armor, the little place where they're like, oh, is this really working? Oh. It's so interesting if you've ever lived with or been with a narcissistic personality. And believe me, I grew up with one <laughs> as a parent. And believe me, I grew up with this narcissistic megalomaniac of a personality. You could watch him. Now you know which one of my parents it is. You could watch him occasionally falter. And you could watch his eyes dart to the side in the middle of telling some story about his greatness because there was a momentary hesitation, a human self-doubt. And I always say to my husband, that's when he was a human. That's when I knew that there was someone actually in there besides the guy telling the endless stories about how great he is. I can see the doubt. But the same here for me. Ugolino's doubt is the moment in which his humanity surfaces, the doubt of whether he is indeed being the manipulative narcissist that he thinks he is. And finally, of course, there is that moment when he breaks the narrative when he addresses the earth. Oh, hard earth, why did you not open up and swallow us? We've talked about that endlessly, the secular plea. But it's inserted at a specific and really interesting point. I mean, these children have been crying out the whole time. You know, Dad, do something. Dad, why do you look so weird? Dad, we're hungry. These children are crying the whole time, and in the middle of all of that crying and sorrow, what Ugolino does is he steals himself and silences himself around his children. We're going to come back to this. But then he lets us hear a plea to the earth to swallow them up. Wouldn't it have been at least something if he'd said that in front of his children? If in the middle of their famine, their hunger, their pain, if he had turned to them and said, 
oh, hard earth, why don't you just swallow us all up? Wouldn't it have at least given his children a modicum of comfort to know that he was suffering what they were suffering? But instead, no, he doesn't do that. He saves that for us, for our reaction. We get to hear his pathos. We get to hear his secular, admittedly, but still his plea. This brings us to the large question of the fatherliness of Ugolino, and much has been written about this, uh, particularly since the 19th century and into the 20th century. Ugolino is always seen as this kind of, I don't know, brutal father who turns to stone, who doesn't comfort his children. And while that may be true, we have to push way back to the Middle Ages and get away from the romantic idea of a father who embraces his children. This is not a romantic ideal that a father somehow cares for, embraces, comforts his children. Maybe human, and there may be all ways that Ugolino should have done this, but I think it's easy for us to overstate this matter, and it might not have been as loud to Dante's audience. Instead, when Ugolino keeps turning to stone and he keeps silent in front of his children, the silence that he exhibits... What that is, is a religious failure. As a father, what he should be doing is leading them in prayers for the end of their lives. They're not going to be able to get extreme unction, the last sacrament before death, but he should be leading them in prayers of penance to prepare for their own death, and he doesn't. That is a huge indictment of Ugolino inside the Christian context of this passage. For Dante, not comforting the children may be truly an inhuman act, but more for Dante, not leading his children to a final penance, to a final prayer, not leading them to humble themselves before the Almighty, to use very Christian wording. That's his failure as a father. That's the problem with the stony silence. Try not to see it as a romantic idea of a fatherly comforter. Try to see it in a medieval context that most fathers, particularly at this economic bracket, would have very little interaction with their children except to, what do I want to say, push them on to military service, to religious devotion. The father would be seen much more as a guiding figure toward righteousness and a proper career in life. We're not talking a modern notion of fatherhood. His silence is an indictment about his lack of religious sentiment. There's a lot of talk about what happens in that last line. There's a lot of talk about what happens in terms of these people being traitors of Ugolino's historical record. That's fair enough. Most Dantistas focus on that matter. Why is Ugolino here? What did he do to get here? And there's plenty in the historical record to account for it, and very little in comedy, in Inferno. Dante does not give us much hints. We have to go outside of this to find out why Ugolino is amongst the traitors. Traders. But I always think to myself, the bigger question is, why is Archbishop Ruggieri here? It is true he's a despicable church figure who used the church of power in order to solidify Ghibelline control of Pisa. But does that make him a traitor? 
is he's traitorous acts stabbing in the back one of his allies, Count Ugolino. If that's his traitorous act, and if we can infer that from the text, I just wish I had a little more. <laughs> in other words, I often hear the question, why is Ugolino in hell? And I always, in the back of my head, think, well, why is Ruggieri in hell? Because he followed his own allegiances. He solidified his own party's control over Pisa. He is not a traitor to his party or his faction. He's a traitor to his friend, which doesn't really put him in Antonora. It puts him on a weird edge between this circle of Cocytus and the next circle. When we pass off Antenor, remember we've come through Kaina, we've come through those who were treacherous toward family members, we're in Antenora, which are those who are treacherous toward political parties or their native land, their homeland, their home state. Now we're kind of going to pass on down to the next rung of treachery. The next rung of treachery mm, uh, is made up of those who have been uh, treacherous toward guests. The host-guest relationship, we'll talk about this in future episodes, is the primary sacred relationship in medieval theology. We'll talk much more about this when we get to it. But there seems to me that there is a way in which, how do I say this, Ugolino is sitting in Antonora and Ruggieri is almost anticipating the next circle, those who take advantage of guests in their homes, which, in fact, Ruggieri does when he invites Ugolino back to Pisa and then has the mob attack his castle. It strikes me that he's not so much being a traitor against his political cause. We're starting to fudge down into that guest host relationship. And I think that's just really important to see that that remains a question sitting in the text. Ugolino also recounts his dream. And this is very important because just I ask you, how many dreams have we seen in Inferno? We don't really see unless you count certain sequences as dreamscapes like the beasts on the mountain. We really don't have any necessarily big recountings of dream sequences in Inferno. But here we do get a fairly detailed dream sequence. And again, I've told you, I think the Dantean art is to sow seeds, to drop hints for what's ahead. And trust me, this dream bit will pay off in purgatory because Dante, our pilgrim, is going to dream in purgatory. He's going to have to rest and spend the night as he climbs the mountain that is purgatory. And he's going to have a series of dreams in purgatorio. And this Ugolino dream, an infernal dream, is looking slightly ahead to the big dreams that are off on our horizon. At the end of the Ugolino speech, we have the condemnation of Pisa. And I always think for those who want to make Ugolino a romantic hero, you just didn't read far enough. If you read the next 12 lines, you see this giant condemnation of Pisa, of its corruption, of its political crisis that is in the text. And this is truly why Ugolino is not a romantic hero, because the Pisans are all, and there's my problem, are all wretched types. This is a huge problem because Dante, we know, wants to make sin 
a personal ethical choice. I sin because I choose to. And we will find out in Purgatorio, I sin because I corrupt love. I take the foundation of the universe, love, and I misinterpret it. I misalign myself with love. I misdirect my love. And that is the very core of sin. And it is my fault. I do it to myself because the universe is flowing with love and I misdirect it. Okay, we can kind of see part of that in Inferno. It's not truly worked out theology yet for us. we got to wait all the way until Marco of Lombardy and on up on Mount Purgatory before we see this worked out for us. But okay, for the moment, let's just say what we know is that Dantean ethics are personal, that it's a choice, that evil is something that I do because I made a choice, a decision to be a certain way. But that then is undercut by saying all peasons are. You can't have it both ways. You can't make it my personal choice and yet make evil some kind of political, historical, cultural context. In fact, this condemnation of Pisa to me is the strangest bit of the whole passage. And here's what I actually think about it. I think that Dante has released this level of irony into his text, this level of complication with Ugolino, all of the many ways we have talked about him as a deeply ambivalent and ironic figure. And now Dante wants to control it. And he comes out of this speech, this sequence, with a direct condemnation of Pisa, thereby taking what had become incredibly gray and making it black and white again. This is such a common move with authors. And let me say, we could do this with Henry James. We could do this with Virginia Woolf. We could do this with The End of Mrs. Dalloway. We could do this over and over again with writers. Great writers find their way into a space in which they are exploring deep and fundamental ironies and ambivalences. And then they get caught in that space and they back up and they have to control it. It's very rare for a writer not to do that. Let me give you an example outside of Dante. In Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte has got this tale of this orphan and her rage at the system. And Jane Eyre is just, I mean, she does nothing but rage against the machine for the entire novel. Rochester, my God, this guy, he keeps his first wife up in the attic. I mean, Jane almost marries him and becomes a bigamist. Men are horrible. She goes running off to the moors. She meets St. John Rivers, this minister. He is a terrible, oh, horrifying figure. And he offers her a Christian mission for her life. He's going to go away and be a missionary. But his proposal sequence to her, (laughs) best proposal ever, is know me for what I am, a cold, hard man. Oh, that wow, how inviting. Thanks. Let me marry that. I mean, what he's saying to Jane is, marry me and you will have purpose in your life as a Christian missionary. And I am a cold, hard man and I will see it through. All through Jane Eyre, There is this basic pushback against male domineering authoritarian figures, including God. Jane herself 
questions the very existence of a paternal loving God until the end of Jane Eyre. And then Bronte doesn't know what to do. And she ends Jane Eyre with a Christian miracle, with Rochester's voice ringing across the moors, Jane, Jane, Jane. And she goes flying back to him. And we end the novel with her sitting like a little girl on Rochester's lap. And this dominant, proto-feminist, raging figure has become the doll in Rochester's lap. All of that fury, anger, ambivalence, and deep characterization that Bronte has let loose is suddenly contained in this Christian miracle of the voice across the moors and Jane's submission to Rochester. I see a similar move right here. Dante has released a great deal of energy into Inferno through Ugolino, a great deal of ambivalence, a great deal of gray matter, (laughs) gray matter both in thinking and gray as in ambivalence, great deal into Inferno right here. And there is a need to pull it back and control it. And how he pulls it back is he condemns an entire city. Dante wants these islands to float into the Arno and drown every Pisan. Now, surely every Pisan does not deserve to die. Look at this apocalyptic imagery. Mountains move in the Mediterranean, block up a major river, and drown an entire city. This is tribalism at its most disturbing. And here it is. In the voice of our great poet Dante, for mm, 12 lines, tribalism trumps theology. This is a kind of wild rage that you want an entire city to be destroyed. You want all of its inhabitants to drown. That's a rage beyond anything that I can quite get my head around. And I think that we have been being set up for this for a very long time. Ever since Dante started out that canto two ago that said, I just don't even have the words to express how bad this is, there's been a rage building. And we see it here in the passage. It's one of the least successful moments for me in comedy. That is, to come out of Ugolino, an intensely personal and individual speech that individuates the sinner, that sets the pathos of the scene, and that is worthy of gallons of scholarly ink because of its complexity, to bring that all down to, I just hope they all die in Pisa, that seems highly unsuccessful. We may be reaching the limits of what Inferno can do, which is why Purgatorio is gladly in our offing. Well, that's our final assessment of Ugolino. And trust me, there is so much more to be said. I'm sure that when I actually sit down and edit this recording, which I will, I am sure I will think of 50 more things I wish I said. Well, I'm going to have to drop it. I wish we could sit down with a glass of wine, in my case, a glass of bourbon, maybe a cup of coffee. I wish we could talk about this together, you and I. But we can't. We can only keep walking. To do that, subscribe to this podcast, rate it, do all the things that 
would be helpful to me. That would be great. Thank you so much for being part of this journey with me. It's overwhelming. I am so glad to be overwhelmed, ambivalent, and in the end, uncertain about Ugolino. We're going to walk on. We got some more sinners to see down here on the ice sheet before we come to the final revelation of hell. Keep walking with me. We're getting there. It's still cold. We're in Cockatrice. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you soon. 